Hello, and welcome to Gone But Not Forgotten, the podcast all about remembering the lives and careers of actors who left us too soon. I'm your host, Audrey Cornell, and today I will be talking about Bruce Lee, who is best known for his martial arts films in the 70s, as well as changing the action film as we know it today. Enjoy the episode and make sure to join me and my co-host Louise next week in which we will be talking about the films of Bruce and Brandon Lee. Lee Jun Fan Shun was born on November 27, 1940 in San Francisco, California to Lee Hoi and Grace Shun. His father was a Cantonese opera star who had recently traveled to the United States on a work visa to raise money for the Chinese war effort. Their baby was given the American name Bruce Lee, who had three older siblings living back in his parents' home city of Hong Kong. When he was just two months old, Bruce was cast as a newborn baby girl in female pioneer filmmaker Esther Ng's movie, Golden Gate Girl. When Bruce was three months old, his parents decided to return to Hong Kong as they missed their children and had overstayed their visa. Bruce was applied for a citizen's return form to ensure that if he ever returned to America, he would not be denied. Once Bruce arrived in Hong Kong for the first time, he became incredibly ill and he was frail and weak for a majority of his childhood. On November 8, 1941, Hong Kong was invaded by Japan and thousands of civilians were murdered. The Japanese overthrew the current British ruling of Hong Kong on Christmas in 1941 and forced anyone who is not a resident or currently employed to leave or be killed. In the three years of Japan's occupation, Hong Kong's population went from 1.5 million to about 600,000 people. Luckily for Bruce's family, his father was offered a deal with the Japanese government to perform for them in exchange for sparing his family's lives. Lee Hoi was the only breadwinner for 13 people, as his extended family also lived with the Lees. As the population had greatly dwindled, Hoi invested in four apartments that he turned into rental properties. The Japanese surrendered in August 1945 after Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bombed by the United States, leaving Hong Kong to question if they would be returned to China. But the British swooped in and reclaimed Hong Kong, inadvertently saving its residents from an incoming civil war between the nationalists and communists that caused turmoil throughout the rest of China, while Hong Kong began to flourish. The population jumped to 3 million over the next five years, and the Lees benefited from Hoy's having invested in rental properties. Bruce's sister Phoebe said that, By 1950, we had a TV, a fridge, a car, and a driver. We didn't have a sense of social classes, but if you had a TV, you must be in the upper class. Five-year-old Bruce also quickly recovered and was nicknamed Never Sit Still, always moving around or chatting. His brother Robert said, He almost had a disorder which filled him with too much extra energy, like a wild horse that had been tied up. The only thing that brought a sense of calm to Bruce was reading. He would often read for hours at a time and especially loved comic books. His mother Grace thought he gained his poor eyesight from reading so much, and he had to wear corrective glasses. Bruce was enrolled in Taksun, an all-boys parochial school, where he was often teased for being small and wearing glasses. To the surprise of anyone who picked on him, Bruce would immediately challenge them to a fight and quickly gained a reputation. Brother Henry, one of the school's teachers, said that, Bruce was basically a good boy and a maverick if you understood him and handled him right. 
He was a live wire charged with I do not know how many kilowatts. So each morning, my first step was to preempt that energy and tire him out before he caused trouble. I gave him all the odd jobs I could think of. However much his teachers and parents tried, Bruce could not be stopped and had even joined a gang where he and his friends would torment anyone who crossed paths with them. In a 1972 article that Bruce penned, he wrote that he came to be greatly interested in the making of films when I was studying in Hong Kong. My father was then well acquainted with lots of movie stars and directors, among whom there was a late Mr. Chin Cam. They brought me into the studio and gave me some roles to play. I started off as a bit player and gradually became the star of the show. Bruce's first speaking role was in 1946's The Birth of Mankind. On this set, six-year-old Bruce became extremely interested in learning the ins and outs of filmmaking. He co-starred alongside his father in 1948's Wealth is Like a Dream, in which he was credited with the stage name Little Hoi Shun. His first lead role came with The Kid, in which a nine-year-old Bruce, credited as Little Dragon Lee, played a feisty street urchin. In 1972, Bruce wrote that making those films was a very crucial experience in my life. For the first time, I was confronted with genuine Chinese culture. I didn't realize it then, nor did I see how great an influence environment had on the molding of one's character and personality. Nevertheless, the notion of being Chinese was then duly conceived. The Kid was a smash success, and plans for a sequel were talked about, but Bruce's father turned it down because he didn't want any of his children to follow in his footsteps, and also felt it was proper punishment for Bruce's inappropriate pranks and behaviors at school. Bruce was beginning to grow apart from his father, whom he had been close with as a young boy. Hoy had an addiction to opium and would often spend any extra money the family had on the drug and spent most of his time smoking or sleeping, which disappointed Bruce on a deeply emotional level. Bruce's wife Linda later recalled that he told her how much his father's absence affected him as a child, who hated that his father was often not mentally there for him. Bruce started his fifth grade year at a Catholic school called the Salt, one of the most prestigious schools in Hong Kong. He excelled at learning English, but was poor at every other class, often paying or bullying kids into doing his homework for him. His mother joked that by the time he was 10, that was as far as he could count. Bruce was held back twice in his five years at LaSalle and became sort of a legend at the school. His brother Peter said that he was more often like a hero in a chivalry movie, always trying to defend the weak from the strong, like a knight-errant type character. Bruce and his gang would often go to the British private schools and fight with the students there, which was their way of showing their Chinese patriotism against the colonizers. Bruce's parents decided that their ban on Bruce's acting had just made his grades and behaviors worse, allowing him to return to the screen. He was soon cast in 1953's The Guiding Light, the first of 10 melodramas produced by Chung Luing, a company that specialized in socially conscious movies. Hoi Lee hoped that the ideals of the company and its films would rub off on Bruce. It later did in Bruce's adult life, when he had goals to make educational movies about China's cultural heritage. Chung Liung broke up in 1955 and Bruce was out of a job, only appearing in five movies over the next five years. He was also expelled from school, most likely for two incidents pulling a knife on his gym teacher after he had whipped Bruce on the legs with a reed and for pantsing a classmate and painting his private parts with red paint. His mother, Grace, enrolled him at St. Francis Xavier's Catholic School in 1956, hoping to get Bruce in line.
Around this time, Bruce took up Gung Fu to learn how to protect himself in street fights. He began learning from Ip Man, a well-known teacher of Wing Chun, a form of martial arts founded in the 17th century after a woman named Yim Wing Chun was pressured into marriage with a bandit warlord. She learned a system of fighting from a nun and told the warlord that she would only marry a man who could defeat her in unarmed combat. Using these techniques, she beat the warlord and thus Wing Chun was born. Bruce was not very well liked by his Wing Chun classmates, who thought he was self-centered and privileged compared to their working class backgrounds. They also thought he was impure because of his Eurasian descent, considering that Gung Fu should only be learned by someone who is fully Chinese. This was something Bruce struggled with throughout his entire life, not fully fitting in with his Chinese heritage nor his American background. He began training privately with Yip Man, and his brother Peter said that he became fanatical. He practiced diligently day and night. Less than a year after he began training, Bruce was already better than many of the senior students, who paled in comparison. Bruce took up cha-cha dancing and learned from a Philippine woman, while coming up with some of his own steps as well, in which he mixed kung fu and cha-cha. Bruce entered a cha-cha contest with his little brother Robert, which they won with ease. It was one of Bruce's proudest achievements throughout his entire life to win the Crown Colony Cha-Cha Championship. Bruce's wife Linda said that his dance training helped with his fighting techniques, since they both involve physical movement and because he must maintain a flow either in dancing or fighting, there was to him a relationship. Bruce's first and last comedy film came with 1956's Sweet Time Together, in which he trades identities with an adult. Bruce took great inspiration from one of his comedic idols, Jerry Lewis. In 1959, Bruce's days of fighting came to an end when he beat up a kid with influential parents and the police were called. Hoy Lee decided that the best option was to send Bruce to America to pull himself together. His sister Phoebe said that Bruce feared his father and had to comply. Dad's intuition was to let him eat bitter in the U.S. Bruce began making plans for his new life, hoping to go to school for medicine or dentistry and teach martial arts to make a little extra money. Since he was only a second level in Wing Chun, he gave cha-cha dances to a master in exchange for classes of northern-style gung fu to appeal to possible students in America. Bruce's brother Robert said that after it was decided Bruce was to go, he suddenly decided to calm down and even to take his studies seriously. He would often stay home for long hours doing homework and reviewing his courses of his own accord. He was also cast in The Orphan, in which he played a juvenile delinquent who must choose between school or jail, similar to Bruce's own current situation. It was one of the highest grossing films in Hong Kong history at that point, and even made its way to the Milan Film Festival. Bruce's performance was so influential that one principal hung a sign in their school that said, no one is allowed to imitate Little Dragon Lee's character in The Orphan. On April 29, 1959, Bruce boarded the SS President Wilson with $100 and was told to only come back if he had made a name for himself. He docked in San Francisco on May 17, where he was met by one of his father's friends, whom he would be living with. Bruce got a job teaching the cha-cha for $1 a person around San Francisco and Oakland. His brother Peter arrived shortly after to help Bruce get ready for his move to Seattle, Washington, where he would be going to school. Peter recalled that Bruce was adjusting well to his life in America, but when they slept at night, every once in a while Bruce would be taken with a dream and start punching and yelling, and once literally tore his pajamas apart as he punched and kicked out in a violent demonstration before settling back for the rest of the night.
Bruce moved in with Ping Chow, who was one of his father's friends from his opera troupe tour in the U.S. Ping and his wife Ruby owned a popular Chinese restaurant in Seattle. In exchange for food and lodging, Bruce worked as a busboy and janitor. He was insolent towards Ruby, who thought Bruce was not the sort of person you want your children to grow up like. He was wild and undisciplined. He had no respect. Bruce was upset that he was living in a 40-square-foot walk-in closet and given such a menial job. He attended Edison Technical High School and in his spare time practiced Wing Chun on his own, as well as dancing the cha-cha with other students at the Chinese Youth Club. At the 1959 Seattle Seafair Fu Exhibition, Bruce performed both 20 different cha-cha routines and a southern praying mantis form. It was at this exhibition that Bruce inspired his first student, Jesse Glover, who wanted to learn Gung Fu but couldn't find any schools that would accept a black student. It just so happened that Glover also went to Edison and finally mustered up enough courage to ask Bruce to teach him. Bruce agreed, but he had to teach Glover at his apartment. They practiced together every day at lunch and in the evenings. Glover finally convinced Bruce to accept his roommate, Ed Hart, a former professional boxer, as a student. Glover also taught at the Seattle Judo Club and would sing Bruce's praises, collecting more hopefuls. One such person was Skip Ellsworth, who recalled that Bruce hit me in the chest with both palms so hard that my feet left the ground and I flew backwards for what seemed like 10 feet before I slammed into a wall. It only took Bruce Lee approximately two seconds to make a true believer out of me. Bruce had soon amassed an incredibly diverse collection of martial arts students over the course of just a few months. The group would train in any public setting, and it was mainly just for practice. Jesse Glover said, We were all dummies for Bruce to train on. He was caught up in his own development and had little patience for teaching those who were not quick to learn. Bruce's students also served as his best friends. They would go to the movies, and Bruce introduced many of them to Chinese cinema. He also liked to talk about philosophy and his love of Hong Kong, which he was homesick for. Bruce and his group finally rented out a small storefront in Chinatown and began traveling to different fairs and expos to promote the now official school. In early 1961, Bruce was admitted into the University of Washington, much to everyone's surprise, considering his past experiences with school. Unfortunately, he started slipping again, and his GPA for his freshman year was 1.84. His brother Peter's girlfriend Eunice said, Bruce talked to me about martial arts, philosophy, and girls, but he never mentioned academics. If you wanted him to shut his mouth, the best way was to ask him about his studies. He went to frat parties with Skip Ellsworth and would impress the boys with his gung fu and cha-cha moves. Bruce was pleased to be accepted by the mainly affluent and white students, but it caused him to strive even harder to succeed in America as a poor Chinese man. Around this time, Bruce was required to sign up for the draft was categorized as 4F due to his poor eyesight. Bruce started dating his first serious girlfriend in his first year of college, a Japanese-American sophomore named Amy Sambo. While their first meeting was less than romantic, Bruce came up to her and squeezed her arm so hard that she fell over just to prove to his friends how much power could be exerted with just two fingers. He eventually won her over by carrying her up every flight of stairs she encountered after she stepped on a nail at dance class. Sanbo was extremely proud of her ethnicity and helped Bruce feel more confident about his background. She said, In a time when so many Asians were trying to convince themselves they were white, Bruce was so proud to be Chinese he was busting with it. Their views differed in goals for the future. Sanbo was a gifted and artistic woman who wanted to be a jazz singer, 
while Bruce felt his kung fu aspirations were more important than hers. Sambo felt suffocated when Bruce got into a controlling streak and eventually broke up with him in the spring of 1963. In an interview with the Seattle High School newspaper, Bruce said that his dream was to establish kung fu institutes throughout the United States and write books about it. Kung fu is a way of life, as well as a mode of self-defense. It is based on yin, negative, and yang, positive, where everything is a complement. Examples are softness with firmness, night with day, and man with woman. It is a quiet awareness of one's opponent's strengths and plans and how to complement them. Tell me now the difference between jiu-jitsu, which is long and involved, and kung fu, which is very quick if you have an opponent. All right, for instance, you will read it in the book, in the magazine and everything, that when somebody grabs you, you will first do this and then this and then and then and then and then thousands of steps before you do a single thing. Of course, this kind of magazine would uh, teach you to be feared by your enemies and admired by your friends and everything. But uh, in Kung Fu, it always involves a very fast motion. Like, for instance, a guy grabbing your hand. It's not the idea to do so many steps. Step him right on the instep. He'll let go. This is what we mean by simplicity. Same thing in striking and in everything. It has to be based on a very minimum motion so that everything would be directly expressed one motion. And he's gone. Doing it gracefully. Not to go, ah, yelling and jumping all over him, but to do that. In 1961, Bruce's student number had dwindled so significantly that he could no longer pay rent for the storefront he had started using as a school. For a year, they practiced in the remaining members' homes until Bruce was able to rent a basement space in Chinatown. It was his first official school, which he named Jun Fan Kung Fu Institute. Unfortunately, Bruce's friends weren't used to paying for lessons and felt like Bruce was becoming more exclusive with his schooling, so many of them quit. It was a harsh blow to both parties, and several of Bruce's past students never talked to him again. In the summer of 1963, Bruce returned to Hong Kong to his ecstatic family, especially his father, Hoi, who was extremely proud of what Bruce had accomplished. His family noted that Bruce was more self-assured and thoughtful than he had been as a teenager, and were pleased that he had found a path that suited him. Bruce wanted to return to the screen, yet no studios or directors would speak with him, much to his disappointment. He returned home three months later and picked up his teaching work again. Earlier that year, he had caught the eye of a high school senior, Linda Emery. When in their freshman year at the University of Washington, Linda's friend told her that Bruce was teaching self-defense classes. The two signed up and Linda became a regular. Every Sunday, the group would go out to eat Chinese food and sometimes to the movies. Once they went to see The Orphan, Bruce's own movie, which greatly impressed Linda. Jun Fan Kung Fu Institute moved from the basement in Chinatown to a proper location near the Washington campus, which also had a built-in bedroom. Bruce finally moved out of the closet and quit his job at Ruby Chow's restaurant. It was officially all-in with his Kung Fu school. He and Linda went on their first date at the brand new Seattle Space Needle. Linda said she was totally captivated by his magnetism and the energy which flowed from him. She struggled to keep her relationship a secret from her family, since she knew they would disapprove of her dating a Chinese man. Bruce had accumulated over 50 students at his school and was more than capable of supporting himself at this point. He kept looking to expand his school and found a partner in James Yim Lee, who agreed to turn his two-car garage into a second branch of the institute. Bruce and James wrote a book, Chinese Kung Fu, The Philosophical Art of Self-Defense, 
both to make some extra money and to act as a training manual for beginners. Bruce had some of his students pose for instructional photographs for the book. Later on, he was embarrassed about it and what he had written in the book, so much so that Linda said, in his need to liberate himself from classical martial arts, he asked the publishers to cease production of this book. Since Bruce was spending so much time driving to and from Oakland, California from Seattle, his grades were dropping and he decided to drop out in his junior year, moving in with James Yim Lee and his family. In the summer of 1964, Bruce and James moved their school from the garage to a building that was so secretive that Bruce didn't even put signs out front. He interviewed every person who was interested and only accepted those with serious goals and previous kung fu knowledge. Despite his strict policies, Bruce was an incredibly intuitive teacher and would craft specific movements for each individual. Student George Lee said that he felt that since no one person was the same, each individual needed different teaching. Bruce was all about learning and growing as a martial artist and would constantly study different kinds of methods to figure out what worked best for him. On August 2, 1964, Bruce presented at the Long Beach Karate Championships in which he displayed his iconic one-inch punch and other techniques he had crafted. While his display was well-received by the crowd, his lecture about the flaws of classical martial arts did not go over so well. The presentation made Bruce rather infamous within the martial arts world. Many students disliked his blatant disregard for traditional styles, while others liked that he was breaking the mold in such a drastic manner. But the most important thing was that the person who would end up changing his career and life path was sitting in the crowd that day. Linda soon found out that she was pregnant and said that while Bruce was happy, the idea of commitment scared him to death. He wanted to be financially secure before undertaking the responsibilities of a wife and family. However, Bruce was so invested in Linda and his soon-to-be-born child that he asked her to marry him. Interracial marriage was still illegal in many states in 1964, but Washington had repealed its anti-miscegenation laws in 1868. To get married, couples had to apply for a marriage license and take a blood test. Bruce and Linda's plan for a quiet elopement was ruined after an announcement of their application was published in the newspaper and Linda's family saw. They threatened to banish her from their family, but when Linda would not relent, they gave in. Linda said, There are very few times in one's life when you absolutely know for certain that you are doing the right thing, and this was one of those times. This was a man of quality and integrity and great love and warmth. Bruce and Linda were married on August 17, 1964, at Seattle's Congressional Church, and from Linda's side, only her mother and grandma showed up. Bruce didn't tell his family that he had gotten married until after the wedding, and it took months for them to accept Linda into the family. Bruce later told a reporter that, Linda is more oriental than some of the Chinese I know. She is quiet, calm, and doesn't yak, yak, yak all the time. To radio and TV mirror, Bruce said, She's a good Chinese wife, and in a Chinese household, the husband is the boss. Linda and I aren't one and one. We are two halves that make a whole. You have to apply yourself to be a family. Two halves fitted together are more efficient than either half would ever be alone. Meanwhile, the Lees moved in with James Yim Lee as they had little money. In exchange for housing, Linda took care of James's wife, who had cancer, and their two children. Bruce was hired by the Shaw Bros. Studio in Hong Kong to accompany Diana Chang Chun Wen, the Mandarin Marilyn Monroe, on her publicity tour throughout the U.S. for her latest film, The Amorous Lotus Pan. He was required to dance the cha-cha with her for the nightly performances and also gave a martial arts demonstration, per his request, 
in hopes of getting more students, since his Oakland branch was struggling. James Lee had recently become an alcoholic after the recent death of his wife, and Bruce knew that he had to do something, and fast, to regain both his school and reputation. After a disastrous performance at the Sun Sing Theater in which Bruce insulted Chinese martial arts and those who practiced it, he issued an open challenge to anyone who wanted to fight him. He began talks with Wong Jack Man and his manager about the details of the fight, insisting that it be at his school in Oakland. Finally, three months later, the date finally arrived and Bruce was furious. The fight was violent and chaotic, lasting for three minutes, but Bruce ended up coming out on top. Instead of being pleased with his victory, Bruce was upset that it had taken him so long to defeat Wong Jack Man and that the fight had gained him more enemies and naysayers than fans. He decided he must completely shed the Wing Chun style of fighting and come up with a completely new and innovative brand. Little did Bruce know his life was about to change. In 1965, hairstylist Jay Sebring was cutting his client's hair. William Dozier, who is a Hollywood producer currently working on a spin-off of the Charlie Chan detective films. He was looking for a Chinese actor to play the part of Chan's character son, which was a big deal since the original series starred Werner Oland, a Swedish man, as Chan. Sebring immediately suggested Bruce for the part, whom he had seen at the Long Beach International Karate Championships. The performance had been taped by Ed Parker, who showed it to Dozier, and it was clear that Bruce was the man. On February 1st, 1965, Linda gave birth to Lee's first child, Brandon Bruce. Bruce often quipped that Brandon was a blonde, gray-eyed Chinaman, maybe the only one around. Three days after Brandon was born, Bruce flew to L.A. for his screen test with 20th Century Fox and bonded immediately with Jay Sebring, who had picked him up from the airport. Now, Bruce, just look right into the camera lens right here and tell us your name, your age, and where you were born. My last name is Lee, Bruce Lee. I was born in San Francisco in 1940. I'm 24 right now. And you worked in uh, motion pictures in Hong Kong? Yes, uh, since I was around six years old. And when did you leave Hong Kong? 1959, when I was 18. I see. Now look over to me, Bruce, as we talk. I understand you just had a baby boy? Yeah. And uh, you've lost a little sleep over it, have you? Three nights. (laughs) A week after Brandon was born, Bruce received news that his father had passed away. He felt torn about leaving Linda, who was ill after giving birth, and his baby, but also felt it was necessary to go to his father's funeral. Bruce ended up visiting Hong Kong for three weeks to pay respects to his father and support his family. When he came back to the States, good news came in the form of a job offer and contract with 20th Century Fox. He was to be paid $1,800 over the course of 18 months. With this money, he and Linda decided to go on a trip to Hong Kong. Bruce and James shut down their failing Oakland school, and Bruce was set on focusing solely on his family and acting career. Bruce wrote to William Dozier about his excitement for the project. This project does have tremendous potential, and its uniqueness lies in the interfusion of the best of both the Oriental and American qualities, plus the never-before-seen gung-fu fighting techniques. I have a feeling that this Charlie Chan can be another James Bond success if handled properly. The Lees arrived in Hong Kong in May 1965. Bruce's family was still grieving the loss of Hoi and weren't too keen on the fact that his wife was a white American. However, as Brandon was the first grandchild of the family, he was given all the attention by his grandmother and aunts. Linda said he became the number one spoiled child you have ever come across. 
While in Hong Kong, Bruce asked his old instructor, Ip Man, to help him write an instructional manual. He was beginning to obsess over martial arts, writing to a friend that, My mind is made up to start a system of my own. I mean a system of totality, embracing all but yet guided with simplicity. He started learning different techniques for his upcoming TV show, knowing that audiences like to be impressed with visuals rather than what was maybe most effective in real-life situations. Unfortunately, shooting for Number One Sun kept getting pushed back while Dozier was focused on producing the upcoming Batman TV show. Bruce's agent told director Robert Wise that Bruce was interested in his latest project, The Sand Pebbles, but the part went to iconic Japanese actor Mako, who received an Academy Award nomination. The Lees returned to Seattle in September 1965 and moved in with Linda's parents, who quickly warmed up to Bruce. Months passed without any sign of number one sun happening on the horizon. Dozier was willing to see if Batman would be a success before officially greenlighting Bruce's show. However, even though the show was a smash success, the script for Number One Son was rejected by ABC, claiming that nobody wanted to see a show about a Chinese character. Bruce was disappointed that neither of the projects that he had been looking forward to had worked out in his favor. However, Dozier was working on getting the Green Hornet comics adapted into a TV show and campaigned for Bruce to play Kato, the Japanese chauffeur of the titular character. A reluctant Bruce was basically forced to sign on to the project, since he was still under contract and had a family to take care of. The part was relatively beefed up from the originally small and racist caricature. Now Kato would be a sidekick, and Bruce could display his kung fu moves. The Lees moved to a small apartment in Los Angeles, and Bruce was enrolled in acting classes with Jeff Corey, a popular character actor who had been blacklisted in the 1950s. From Corey, Bruce learned how TV shows were filmed, and they attempted to water down his accent. Bruce later quipped that he got the part in The Green Hornet because he was the only Chinese guy in all of California who could pronounce Brit Reed. Bruce received a check of $400 a week, which seemed like a lot to him, but in reality, he was getting less than a fifth of leading man Van Williams' salary. Filming began in June 1966 and immediately faced conflict amongst, amongst its creators. Dozier wanted to capitalize off of the campy style of Batman, while original writer George Trendle wanted it to be a serious dramatic show. Bruce himself said that, It is completely different from Batman. The Green Hornet is a James Bondish type straight action show. There won't be any kind of camp humor. Bruce wasn't used to the far apart style of screenwriting and insisted on doing real combat with the stuntmen, who got to the point where they wanted to quit the show. Bruce finally changed his mind when he saw the final product. His moves were too fast for the camera to even pick up on, so it looked almost comical. Williams said, Once he calmed down on film and stopped jumping around on set, he got along really well with everyone. He was a very loyal friend. He never talked bad about anybody behind their back or anything else. Bruce was internally disappointed with how small his role was, and despite how much he politely asked for more lines and scenes, even coming up with plots for entire episodes himself, he was barely rewarded. Right before filming began, he wrote a letter to Dozier that said, I myself feel that at least an occasional dialogue would certainly make me feel more at home with the fellow players. It does take a real pro to just stand there and big close-up. I've learned the effectiveness of simplicity, but in order to cultivate simplicity, something to say or do is necessary. I've presented two scripts to Jeff Corey, but so far we've been doing other exercises because there just isn't anything in the script to work on. 
I'm not complaining, but I feel that an active partnership with the Green Hornet will definitely bring out a more effective and efficient Cato. My aim is for the betterment of the show. <coughs> While filming the Green Hornet, Bruce began an affair with Thordis Brandt, who played a small role in one of the episodes. She didn't know he was married until her on-and-off-again boyfriend hired a private detective to investigate him. Brandt ended up calling it off, but it marked the first of many affairs Bruce had with his female co-stars. Meanwhile, many audiences and magazines were interested in Bruce's family life and how novel it was that he was married to a white American woman while his son was a biracial child, described by one author as a fascinating blend of the thoughtfulness of the East and the vigor of the West. Bruce told TV and movie screen that Brandon is being brought up in the midst of two cultures. He will be taught to take some principles from one, some from the other. Oriental culture and Occidental culture are not mutually exclusive, but mutually dependent. Neither would be remarkable if it were not for the existence of the other. Bruce was many Americans' first introduction as both a Chinese screen presence and to the art of Kung Fu. The first, and only at that point, Chinese-American who appeared on television was Anna Mae Wong in the gallery of Madame Lu Song, which briefly ran in the early 1950s. Bruce quickly became the most popular martial artist in the States and was even the most celebrated aspect of the Green Hornet back in Hong Kong. Unfortunately, the ratings for the show were incredibly low, and it dragged on for a total of 26 episodes before ABC pulled the plug. Even though Bruce was disappointed, he wrote a thank you to Dozier, saying, Without you, I would never have thought about being in Hollywood. I gained tremendous experience from the Green Hornet and believe I've improved steadily since the first show. My attitude in this business is to take things as they are. Throughout his career, Bruce remained steadfast in his refusal to play any roles that would be racist or demeaning. On the plus side, he was able to spend more time with his family and crafting his style, which he termed Jeet Kune Do, roughly translated to Way of the Intercepting Fist. In a printout that he gave to new students at the LA school, Bruce described his methods as such. Jeet Kune Do is training and discipline toward the ultimate reality in combat. The ultimate reality is returning to one's primary freedom, which is simple, direct, and non-classical. One should respond to circumstances without artificial and wooden prearrangement. One's action should be like the immediacy of a shadow adapting to a moving object. Any technique, however worthy and desirable, becomes a disease when the mind is obsessed with it. When you perceive the truth in Jeet Kune Do, you are at the undifferentiated center of a circle that has no circumference. All in all, Bruce had created a style that had no particular style. It was more about an individualized and philosophical approach to martial arts. His friend Dan Inosanto said that, Bruce was anti-establishment, the voice of the 60s. He questioned everything. He said, if you don't question it, you can't grow. Bruce wrote in 1972 that organized institutes tend to produce patternized prisoners of a systemized concept, and the instructors are often fixed in a routine. By imposing a lifeless preformation, their natural growth is blocked. A really good teacher functions as a pointer to truth, but not a giver of truth. He employs a minimum of form to lead his student to the formless. Bruce was highly invested in training as often and as much as possible. He stuck to a rigorous schedule every week that involved jogging for five miles every morning, lifting weights, and practiced 500 reps each of punches, finger jabs, and kicks. While it honed both his body and skills, it also affected his health. His friend said that Bruce always seemed to be wet. Even in an air-conditioned room, he would quickly perspire. 
Throughout the day, he would drink a shake made of water, powdered milk, eggs, including the shells, bananas, oil, and ice cream. Sometimes he would also drink blended raw hamburger. Bruce was a health nut and despised alcohol and drugs, although Steve McQueen later turned him on to marijuana. After Bruce's display at the 1964 Long Beach Karate Championships, he returned in 67, where he experienced his first real display of celebrity. Thousands of people came, half just to watch his demonstration. When attending other championships and tournaments, Bruce was often mobbed by fans and frightened by the sheer number of people who wanted to see him. His friend, Midoshiya Uehara, recalled that Bruce told him, the karate guys are the only ones who don't pay me a single penny to perform. When I was invited to a parade recently, I got paid $4,000. I don't mind helping out the martial artists, but since I'm the drawing power and not getting paid, at least I expect to be treated good. He soon learned that the promoters all over the country would use his name to get people to come to events, but Bruce had never even been invited in the first place. Bruce was approached by businessmen who wanted to open a franchise called Cato Karate School that would be completely funded by them. All Bruce had to do was put his face and name on it. While it would secure him for a lifetime supply of money, Bruce ultimately had to turn it down. He said, I could have made a fortune, but I didn't want to prostitute my art for the sake of money. William Dozier's assistant, Charlie Fitzsimmons, recalled that after the Green Hornet ended, Bruce wasn't sure what to do and was very concerned about whether or not he had a future in the industry. And that's where I say there was this strange combination of humility as far as acting was concerned, and yet this consuming power and ego that was in this young man. I thought that, yes, he would have a career, and it was worth his while sticking with it. But in the meantime, how about teaching and using that to earn the necessary money you need for overhead? He recommended Bruce start teaching all of the middle-aged, would-be macho individuals in the motion picture industry. Jay Sebring was recruited to pass out Bruce's business cards, and he soon became a private instructor for Vic Damone, James Coburn, Roman Polanski, and Steve McQueen, among others. Why would they want to learn Chinese martial art? Because of a movie role? Not really. I mean, uh, most of them, you see, uh, to me, uh, at least the way that went, I mean, when I teach it, all type of knowledge ultimately means self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they are coming in to, I mean, for, and ask me to teach them not so much of how to defend themselves or how to do somebody in. Rather, they want to learn to express themselves through some movement, be it anger, be it uh, determination, or whatsoever. So in other words, what I'm saying, therefore, is that he is paying me to show him in combative form the art of expressing the human body. While he was more than willing to teach men with a variety of age and experience, Bruce never accepted female students. In a 1970 interview for a Singapore publication, he said that a fighter must be fierce but have patience at the same time. The worst opponent you can come across is one whose aim has become an obsession. For instance, if a man has decided that he's going to bite off your nose, no matter what happens to him in the process, the chances are he will succeed in doing it. That is the real fighter. Women fighters are all right, but they are no match for the men who are physiologically stronger. My advice is that if they have to fight, hit the man at his vital spots and then run. Women are more likely to achieve their objectives through feminine wiles and persuasion. In 1968, the Lees bought their first home in Bel Air for $47,000, and even then it needed a lot of work to be fixed. 
Steve McQueen even offered to cover the $10,000 down payment, but Bruce declined, saying, It was nice of him, and I sure appreciated it. That Steve is too much. It probably would have been better if Bruce had accepted, since the Lees were now in debt. His school transferred to his backyard. One of Brandon's friends stopped going to the house because he was scared of all of the grown men fighting and screaming at each other. Bruce's mother, Grace, sold one of the apartments in Hong Kong that his father had invested in back in the 40s, and Bruce's share was $7,000, the perfect amount to purchase a Porsche that he had been eyeing for several months. Linda said, It was extravagant when we were hardly making mortgage payments, but it made Bruce happy. On April 19, 1969, the Lee's second child, Shannon Emery Lee, was born in Santa Monica. Bruce was immediately taken with his daughter, but like when Brandon was born, he was also nervous about providing for his family. Bruce's acting career was on the rocks. He only received a few guest-starring roles over the course of the next couple years in TV shows like Longstreet, Blondie, and Here Come the Brides. A bigger and more exciting opportunity came in 1968, when he was hired by Columbia to be the fight choreographer for The Wrecking Crew for $11,000, which he used to pay his house mortgages. Bruce said stars Sharon Tate and Nancy Kwan were pretty good students. They were doing sidekicks with just a minimum of teaching. Nancy asked me to teach her privately, but I told her she can't afford me. Leading man Dean Martin was not on Bruce's good side since he was unable to learn anything from being drunk all the time, so Bruce hired some of his friends to double for Martin's action scenes. Mike Stone, Martin's double, remembered that Bruce was an absolute clown, so wonderful, such a tremendous sense of humor, a practical joker really like a kid. Between shooting, he would show you these push-ups, play jokes with coins, magic tricks, and stuff. However, their friendship began to dwindle because Bruce felt that many of his students weren't giving him proper credit for his contributions. He said, these guys, just because they're designated as champions, don't want to be classified as my students. They want to learn from me, but want others to feel that they're equal or almost equal to me. Bruce's first appearance in a Hollywood film was 1969's Marlowe, starring James Garner as the titular detective. Bruce's small part was written specifically for him by screenwriter Sterling Siliphant, who had been one of Bruce's students for the past few years. Sharon Farrell, who was in the film, said that Bruce was fine in life, but when he got in front of the camera, he had problems. He tried too hard. However, he displayed some impressive stunt work, including smashing a hanging light that was eight feet off the ground with a high kick. Bruce started up a relationship with co-star Sharon Farrell, who was stuck in a miserable marriage with her manager. They agreed to stop seeing each other when filming of Marlowe ended so they could focus on their careers and Bruce could return to his family. However, when Steve McQueen asked Bruce if he would travel with him to Mississippi to continue to be his trainer while filming The Reavers, he mainly agreed because Farrell was playing the leading lady. In relation to the sex-fueled swinging 60s and his unfaithful friends, Bruce told an interviewer, Let me put it this way, to be honest and all that, I'm not as bad as some of them, but I'm definitely not saying I am a saint. Bruce began working on his own screenplay that he wanted Steve McQueen to star in, and Bruce would be playing all of the villains that represented four of the seven deadly sins. Bruce was hoping to make the first American martial arts movie, and he needed a big name to get the film made. Unfortunately, McQueen was not as eager to have Bruce riding on his coattails and dropped out. Sterling Siliphant, who had agreed to help Bruce write the screenplay, recalled that he was bereft. This crazy film was not just a passing fancy. It became an obsession. This was his road to stardom. 
They got James Coburn to sign on, and he was set to direct as well. Siliphant wanted to replace himself with his nephew Mark, a decision that Bruce is not happy with, wanting a screenwriter with experience. As negotiations for the movie began, Bruce was hired to do fight choreography for A Walk in the Spring Rain, starring Anthony Quinn and Ingrid Bergman, which was filming in Tennessee. When he returned to Hollywood in May 1969, Bruce received a script treatment from Mark and didn't like it, so Mark was fired. Bruce set out once again to find a writer for his dream project, but things were put on pause when the Manson family murdered six people at 10050 CLO Drive, including Bruce's friends Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. While the police were looking for the killers, Tate's husband, Roman Polanski, decided to take matters into his own hands and suspected that Bruce had been the killer. His suspicions were heightened even further when a pair of glasses was found in the house and Bruce mentioned that he had recently lost his. Polanski took him to get new frames and said, his prescription bore no resemblance to the lenses found at the scene of the crime. Bruce and Polanski remained close friends until Bruce's death. Throughout 1970, Bruce, James Coburn, and Sterling Siliphant finally started writing the script for what would be called The Silent Flute. Siliphant said, Bruce and Jimmy contributed enormously and richly to the texture of the script so that you could smell it. It was there, and we all got excited. The film oozed with sex, violence, and philosophy, and probably would be difficult to sell to a Hollywood studio. In a 1970 interview, Bruce said that the movie has something to appeal to different people on different levels. There's enough violence to satisfy almost anyone, yet there's a study of man's evolution and attitude as Coburn meets people and finds death and love, looking for the ultimate truth. In March 1970, Bruce and five-year-old Brandon traveled to Hong Kong in hopes to get a visa for his mother, Grace, so she could live in America, since all of Bruce's siblings, except for his brother, Peter, had immigrated over to the States. He was surprised to land in his home city and be greeted by massive crowds and excited fans who knew him from recent airings of The Green Hornet. On a TV talk show, Bruce was spotted by David Lowe, the son of director Lowe Wei, who passed the information down to his boss, producer Raymond Chow of Golden Harvest Studios. They hoped to speak with Bruce, but he had already returned to America. Chow somehow got Bruce's number and gave him a call, asking him if he would want to make a film in Hong Kong. Since he was currently preoccupied with his own film, he declined Chow's offer. Bruce hit another roadblock in August 1970 when he accidentally injured a nerve in his back lifting weights and was bedridden for three months. For someone as active as Bruce, this was like torture, especially since the doctors told him he would never be able to do martial arts again. He told a friend, I really got scared because I just got Shannon and I spent a lot of money on doctors for my treatment. I'm not afraid for myself because I can always exist, but when you have others to feed, it scared me a lot. After three months of bed rest, Bruce was able to be a little more active around the house as he received rehab treatment. Linda got a job, much to Bruce's dismay. He was left in charge of Brandon and Shannon. It was the first time he ever took care of his kids on a level like that. If a friend happened to ask where Linda was, Bruce would lie and say she was out of the house for errands, not wanting to admit that his wife was providing for their family instead of him. Five months after his accident, Bruce began exercising again and soon was able to do everything he had done before, although his back continued to cause him pain for the rest of his life. The Silent Flute was pitched to Warner Brothers Studio, who was recently enjoying success from the documentary Woodstock that had saved the studio from bankruptcy. 
Sterling Sillifin and Bruce were invited to Chairman Ted Ashley's mansion to discuss the film, and Bruce gave a demonstration. Ashley recalled that, It took my breath away. It was one thing to know that there is something called martial arts, but it was another thing entirely to be two or three feet away from it. Warners agreed to make the movie, but it had to be filmed in India since they had frozen assets there. In January 1971, Bruce, James Coburn, and Sillifan flew to India to scout out locations, but it was proving to be a difficult experience for the three of them. They often bickered, and Bruce's back was hurting even more than usual. Bruce said, I thought I saw poverty in Hong Kong when I was growing up, but it was nothing compared to India. I never realized how good we live until I went there. As they traveled around India, Bruce became even more insistent that they film wherever they could since they had the money and guarantee from the studio, but Sillifan and Coburn were against it. They returned to Hollywood in February, and the project was abandoned. Bruce was bitter and disappointed since his friends had spoiled his dream project. In April 1971, Bruce called producer Raymond Chow back and told him he was willing to do a film now that he didn't have much money, and his opportunities in Hollywood were slim to none. Bruce asked Chow what his best film was, to which Chow responded, the Chinese boxer. Bruce claimed he could do even better than that. However, he was still uncertain whether or not he wanted to work with Golden Harvest Studios, which was struggling with its output and finances. He reached out to Run Run Shaw, who co-owned the Shaw Brothers studio and was Chow's nemesis, to possibly collaborate with him. Bruce's childhood friend, Unicorn Chan, worked with the studio, and Bruce contacted him to help get his stipulations across. Two of his three requirements were rejected, and he ended up signing a contract with Golden Harvest to make two films, mainly for the money. Bruce left for Thailand in July 1971, where The Big Boss was being filmed, and began working on his first Hong Kong production in 11 years. James Tian was being groomed as the next big martial arts star and had the leading role, but Bruce was being paid the most out of the film's $100,000 budget. Stuntman Zebra Pan said, We heard that they'd spent all this money on Bruce Lee, and we were going, who is this guy? Bruce, in The Big Boss, you play a man who's very slow to anger. He's shy, diffident. Uh, you even stay out of fights in the early scenes because of a promise you made to your mother. Yes. Um, is that a little bit like you, or is this just a screen personality? Uh, this is definitely a screen personality, because uh, as a person, one thing that I have definitely learned, and, and my life, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a life of self-examination and self-peeling of myself bit by bit, day by day is that I do have a bad temper, <laughs> a violent temper, in fact. <laughs> uh, so that is definitely, I mean, some people that I am portraying, you know, not Bruce Lee as he is. The set was tense as Bruce was considered too Hollywood and people thought he was stealing the show away from Tian. The traditional style of fighting in Chinese films was more acrobatic and inspired by Cantonese opera, but Bruce wanted his fights to be updated and straight to the point. Producer Lu Liang Hua, who was the wife of director Lo Wei, was called upon to make an important decision. She decided to fire the current director and hire her husband instead. Bruce was relieved, but his hopes were quickly dashed when he learned that Lo Wei was not a very invested director and spent much of his time listening to horse races on the radio. Bruce wrote to Linda, The film I'm doing is quite amateur-like. A new director has replaced the uncertain old one, this new director is another so-so one with an almost unbearable air of superiority. 
In the end, Bruce was chosen to be the main character despite how much he and Lil Wei did not get along, which attested to something. Bruce stayed respectful in the press, telling reporters that it was true that Lil Wei and I often argued on set, but it was all for the purpose of making The Big Boss the best movie we could. Since we are both strong-willed, it was inevitable that there would be some butting of heads, but these were always about the work and were not personal. Now Bruce was in demand both at Paramount back in the States as well as with the Shaw Bros, who seemed to be regretting their decision to turn Bruce down earlier in the year. Contrary to popular belief, Bruce did not come up with the idea for a movie called Kung Fu. It was pitched to him by Warner Brothers executive Fred Weintraub, who in turn had been presented with the script by writers Ed Spielman and Howard Friedlander. It was about a Shaolin monk who travels to America in Old West times. While Bruce was filming The Big Boss, Weintraub pitched Kung Fu to Tedka, who was in charge of Warner Brothers' television division. The project went through and was set to air in 1972. Bruce was once again considered for the role, but ultimately rejected. Weintraub said the show needed an actor who could portray the sense of quiet serenity that the main character possessed, a quality that driven and intense Bruce was not known for. David Carradine was cast instead, causing a backlash within the Chinese community. The Association of Asian Pacific American Artists filed a complaint that Warner Bros. had used unfair casting practices but Warner's claimed that there was no suitable Chinese actor to carry the series. When Bruce returned to the U.S. in September, the pilot episode of Longstreet that he had appeared in aired and gave him some positive reviews. The New York Times said, The Chinaman, who emerges impressively enough to justify a series of his own, lends a deft touch of exotica with advice on how to, quote, learn the art of dying. When asked about the show in a 1971 interview, Bruce said, now, I think the successful ingredient in it was because I was being Bruce Lee. Yourself. Myself, right. And did that part, just express myself, like I say, honestly express myself at that time. And I, because of that, I, I brought, you know, favorable mentioning in, like, New York Times, uh, which says, like, the Chinaman, uh, who incidentally came off... Uh, quite convincingly enough to earn himself a television series and so on and so on and so forth. The New York Times was correct when they surmised that Bruce should have a show. Not wanting to lose him, Ted Ashley offered Bruce the chance to make a show. Bruce had one idea in mind that he called The Warrior. It shared several similarities to Kung Fu, as it was about a Chinese warrior who travels to old Western America to free Chinese workers from being exploited. Whether he had come up with the concept before or after he read the script for Kung Fu is unknown. Have people come up in the industry and said, well, we don't know how the audience are going to take a non-American? Such question has been raised. In fact, it is, it is, it is being discussed. And that is why the warrior is probably is not going to be on. I see. You see, because uh, unfortunately, uh, such thing does exist in this world, you see, like... I don't know, certain part of the country, right? Where, like, they think that business-wise, it's a risk. And I don't blame them. And I don't blame them. I mean, in the same way, it's like in Hong Kong, if a foreigner come and, be, and became a star, if I were the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, mon the man with the money, I probably would have my own worry of whether or not the acceptance would be there. But that's all right, because... If you, if you honestly express yourself, it doesn't matter, see? Warrior's first season finally aired in 2019 and is co-produced by Shannon Lee. 
In another ironic twist, Brandon Lee's first film was the 1986 TV movie Kung Fu the Movie, set several years after the show's end. Warner Bros. hoped it would regenerate the show. It did, but not until 1993, and Brandon was not involved. Leading up to the premiere of The Big Boss in October of 1971, Bruce was all over Hong Kong television shows and printed articles in hopes to publicize the film as much as possible. Both his and Golden Harvest careers hinged on how successful the film was. Bruce said during the film, we kept looking at the reaction of the fans. They hardly made any noise at the beginning, but at the end, they were in a frenzy and began clapping and clamoring. Those fans are emotional. If they don't like a movie, they'll cuss and walk out. The film was an even bigger success than anyone had ever dreamed or expected. Bruce and Linda were completely mobbed after the movie ended, and he had officially become a star. The Big Boss made one million Hong Kong dollars in just three days, which was an extreme accomplishment. The Washington Post wrote that, Bruce Lee in motion is an exhilarating sight to behold, explosive, graceful, and amusing. Lee gets an audience response I haven't heard since Steve McQueen's motorcycle ride in The Great Escape. For Bruce, who had made it a goal to become a bigger star than McQueen, this couldn't have been a higher compliment. I think you'd probably agree, Bruce, that the thing that's limited the, the appeal of Chinese films to Western audiences is that it's very unusual to find a Chinese actor who can act. And when I say that, I, I mean act in a Western style, in a yeah. manner that uh, would make non-Chinese pay money to see them. Uh, you seem to have crossed that barrier. How do you think you've achieved it? Uh, do you think it has to do with your time in the United States? Oh, you yes. studied there, didn't you? Yes, it definitely has, you know, because uh, when I first arrived there, you know, I did the Green Hornet, you know, television series back in 65. And as I look around, man, I mean, I saw a lot of human beings. And as I look at myself, I was the only robot there because I was not being myself. And I'm trying to accumulate external security external uh, technique or uh, the way to move my arm the way but never to ask and say what bruce lee would have done if the word if such a thing happened to me when i look around i always learn something and that is to be always yourself and to express yourself to have faith in yourself do not go out and look for a successful personality and duplicate him. Now, that seems to me that that is the prevalent thing happening in Hong Kong. Like they always copy mannerism, but they never start from the very root of his being, and that is, how can I be me? The Big Boss spurred such a high audience approval since Chinese nationalism was at an all-time high because of U.S. President Nixon's decision to give the Diao Islands in the South China Sea to Japan. Bruce's brother Peter's classmate, Marciano Baptista, said that one of the problems with Hong Kong is we never had an identity until after 1971 when we were forced to choose. We began to have a Chinese identity because Nixon gave the islands to somebody else. Jackie Chan, who was later a stunt double in some of Bruce's films, as well as his friend, recalled that he and his friends were prepared to hate the big boss. We really wanted to. After all, this overseas Chinese guy had come in out of nowhere, was making hundreds of times our salaries, and had Hong Kong eating out of the palm of his hand. But the film was everything the movies we were making weren't. And even though the big boss may not seem very impressive for today, for us then, it was a revelation. 
Louise moved from Los Angeles to Kowloon, Hong Kong, and Bruce began working on his next film with Lo Wei and Golden Harvest, Fist of Fury, in which he plays a kung fu student who takes revenge on a Japanese school for targeting his friends and classmates. Jakara Hashimoto, who played one of the Japanese students, recalled that, When you have a fight in Japan, it's like dancing at a certain tempo. It has a flow and is easy to understand. Over there, they just do it directly. They don't care if it hurts or somebody gets injured. I admired that. Bruce's three-time co-star, Nora Miao, recalled that, Usually in making martial arts films, they could punch slightly away. That wouldn't show if the angle was right. But Bruce really knew martial arts, so he fought for real. After reading that Lo Wei had taken credit for his fighting capabilities, Bruce banned his director from being involved in any more of the fight scenes and took it upon himself to choreograph them himself. Han Ying Chi, who had choreographed for the big boss and played the titular character, was also supposed to be staging the fights. Stuntman Zebra Pan said, We all came in to shoot that opening scene, the one where Bruce beats up all the Japanese in their dojo. Han Ying Chi says, Okay, Bruce, let's try this. And Bruce goes, No, how about this? And for the first time started to really do Bruce Lee. We were just knocked out by it, and after that, Han Ying Chi just kept quiet. Nora Miao said, Kung Fu films were very popular back then. Sword fights, people flying about, etc. But these all disappeared when Bruce emerged. His films had intense physical fights. There's something about his style and his personality as well. His poise was so different from the stars or actors then. Bruce gained a lot of respect from the cast and crew who worked on his films. He paid the medical bills for anyone who got hurt and would demand that his boss give everyone a raise whenever money was tight. His Enter the Dragon co-star, Bolo Young, said that Bruce got along really well with the low-level people on set, but he was extremely impolite to his boss. Fist of Fury premiered in March 1972 and ended up doing even better than the big boss had, making a total of 4.3 million Hong Kong dollars in just a month in Hong Kong alone. On December 1, 1971, Bruce and Raymond Chow established a production company called Concord. The profits would be split 50-50 and allowed Bruce more creative control over his career. The Lees were more well-off than they had been in a while, although much of the money Bruce had made from his films went toward paying off debts. Two-year-old Shannon started attending an exclusive nursery school, and Brandon was admitted into Bruce's old school, the Saul. He was surprised that the teachers were pleased to see him, as he had been expelled. Brandon quickly adapted to his father's childhood ways and started beating up his classmates. Bruce is proud, Linda less so. On Linda's birthday in 1972, Bruce first encountered Taiwanese actress Betty Tingpei, who had been signed with the Shaw Bros Company but was no longer in work. Bruce reached out to ask her to star in his upcoming movie, Yellow-Faced Tiger, but Betty said, I didn't believe he wanted to work with me. I thought to myself, he probably just wants to be boyfriend and girlfriend. Yellow-Faced Tiger was originally set to be directed by Bruce's two-time collaborator, Lo Wei. However, Bruce did not want to work with him anymore, thinking his version of the script was weak, and he wanted to make his own movie called Way of the Dragon. Lo Wei replaced Bruce with Jimmy Wang Yu, who was Bruce's main competition in the Hong Kong film world. Bruce was furious and decided to go forward with his own project instead. Yellowface Tiger was released in 1973 as A Man Called Tiger. Bruce started working on the script for Way of the Dragon, which he dictated in English and then translated. He set the film in Rome, wanting to be the first Chinese film made in Europe, and also hoped that the success of the film with a Western audience would catch Hollywood's attention once more.
1971, Bruce said, I have already made up my mind that in the United States, I think something about the Oriental, the, I mean the true Oriental should be shown. Hollywood sure as heck hasn't. You better believe it, man. I mean, it's always that pigtail and bouncing around, chop chop, you know, with the eye slant and all that. Bruce would also be directing the movie, which he achieved by meeting with Shaw Bros and hoping that Golden Harvest would try to keep him on by allowing him to direct. His plan worked and was one he would use whenever he had an issue with Raymond Chow. Bruce and several crew members arrived in Italy in May 1972 and began scouting out locations and seeing the sites. They filmed for 12 days for exterior shots before returning to Hong Kong. There, they received less than savory press editorials. Bruce was beginning to come off as more conceited and boastful. Reporters became more critical of him now that he was Hong Kong's biggest star. The cast and crew of Way of the Dragon enjoyed working with Bruce, though. Assistant director Chi Yao Chang said he was a nonstop engine. You would always see him moving, directing, demonstrating. Even though he could have taken a break at any time, he chose to busy himself in showing his colleagues how to fight and would often tell dirty jokes which enlivened the sometimes tense atmosphere of the movie set. Bruce had written a detailed 13 pages for the climactic scene between him and Chuck Norris, which he had based on the 1966 fight between Muhammad Ali and Cleveland Williams. The scene took three days to shoot. Bob Wall recalled that Bruce taught him and Norris how to fight specifically for film. When you fight for real, you don't let somebody know they've hurt you. But because it is a staged fight scene, somebody's not going to hurt you, but you have to convince the audience that they did. So it's a reverse. Way of the Dragon was released on December 30th, 1972, and within two weeks had made 5307000 Hong Kong dollars, beating Fist of Fury's record. However, Bruce was less than pleased with the overall quality and did not want it to be released in the United States. Behind his back, Raymond Chow sold the distribution rights and Bruce felt betrayed. He started working on the script for a project called Northern Leg, Southern Fist, which would combine martial arts and Bruce's philosophies. He ended up shelving it since the production company was not confident that it would do well. In an undated essay, Bruce wrote that, To the administrators up in their administrative offices, an actor is a commodity, a product, a matter of money, money, money. Whether or not it sells is their chief concern. In a way they are wrong, yet in a way they are right. Cinema is in fact a marriage of practical business and creative talent. But to regard an actor, a human being, as a product is somewhat emotionally aggravating to me. To me, an actor is the sum total of all that he is. His high level of understanding of life, his appropriate good taste, his experience of happiness and diversities, his intensity, his educational background, the sum total of all that he is. Bruce started working on Game of Death in Hong Kong throughout mid-1972. Dan Inosanto, who trained under Bruce and later went on to be Brandon Lee's teacher, said that Bruce's movie making is like his fighting. He just did it. He didn't know until the night before exactly what he was going to do. He made up the story details as he went along, spontaneously. That's the way Game of Death was. Bruce's character, wearing the iconic yellow jumpsuit with the black stripe on the side, had to fight a bad guy on each of the five levels of a pagoda before getting to the top and collecting a prized treasure, which he never came to a decision on what it would be. Bruce hired his friends to play villains at different levels of the pagoda, one of which included Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 
who had been one of Bruce's students starting back in the 60s and had recently won an NBA championship. Bruce also offered Normie out the role of his sister, whom the plot centered around. Her character getting kidnapped by the gang sets the plot in motion. In the version released in 1978, the role was later rewritten as Bruce's character's fiance and played by Colleen Camp. Meow turned Bruce down because she didn't want people to think she was just using him to advance her career, as she had appeared in all of his martial arts films as of then, but had a sizable career on her own. Bruce set the project aside after a couple months of filming the final scenes, unable to come up with the exact story he wanted. Bruce was starting to feel the pressures of fame and being constantly recognized everywhere was tiring. He told Black Belt Magazine that the biggest disadvantage to being famous was not having any privacy. There's hardly a place in Hong Kong where I can go to without being stared at or people asking me for autographs. In the beginning, I didn't mind the publicity I was getting, but soon it's got to be a headache. When you become successful, when you become famous, it's very, very easy to be blinded by all these happening, everybody come up to you as Mr. Lee. When you have long hair, they will say, hey man, like that's in, man, baby, that's the in thing. But if you have no name, they will say, boy, look at that disgusting juvenile delinquent. I mean, too many people are yes, yes, yes to you all the time, you see? So unless you really at that time have gone through quite a lot and understand what life is about and that right now man some game is happening and realizing such that that is a game fine and dandy then it's all right but most people tend to be blinded by it because i mean if things are repeated too many times you believe in it and it becomes a habit he was also frequently asked for fights with random people in the streets and had to hire a bodyguard. He even began carrying around a gun, becoming more paranoid than ever before. The press didn't help matters, purposefully provoking Bruce so they could write that he was a loose cannon with no sense of respect. The Hong Kong press wasn't sure whether to support Bruce, who believed that everyone under the sun is a member of a universal family. You may think that I am bluffing and idealistic. But if anyone still believes in racial differences, I think he is too backward and narrow. No matter if your color is black or white, red or blue, I can still make friends with you without any barriers. His views came into question since he wasn't considered fully Chinese, having lived in America for most of his life and married a white woman. He was also coming under fire for continuing to spread his opinions that traditional martial arts styles, including Wing Chun, which he had trained in for most of his formative years, or nothing compared to Jeet Kune Do. On one TV program, he said that the training method of Chinese martial arts today is like teaching people to swim on dry land. Bruce sued the China Star for libel after they wrote a piece claiming that he had threatened the paper for writing a fabricated story about how Bruce was a flawed student while training as a teenager. He failed to attend the funeral of Ip Man, his master, and was highly criticized. Unfortunately, Bruce hadn't even known of Ip Man's passing because it was only reported in Chinese newspapers that Bruce did not read, and his former classmates purposefully did not tell him. Ip Man's son, Ip Chung, said he tried to call Bruce, but someone prevented me from doing so, and I never did. A week after the funeral, Bruce arrived in Hong Kong to pay his respects and apologized to Ip Man's family for not attending. Despite all of the issues Bruce was facing, he was finally offered a Hollywood film titled Blood and Steel in late 1972. 
He asked for script approval and complete control over the fight choreography, which ruffled the feathers of studio executives. Producer Fred Weintraub said that Bruce's requests exceeded the decision-making power of an actor, encroaching on the territory of the producer and director. Some of the higher-ups at Warner Brothers actually suggested I find someone to replace Bruce. However, they ended up agreeing to his demand to choreograph the fight sequences. Filming began in Hong Kong in January of 1973, and Bruce's co-stars were John Saxon, Bob Wall, and Jim Kelly. He offered the role of undercover agent Mei Ling to his mistress, Betty Ting Pei, who had recently moved into the same neighborhood as the Lees, but Bruce ended up casting Betty Chung instead. Betty Ting Pei was upset that Bruce had passed her over for two roles he'd originally promised her, and he broke off their relationship. She swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills, but was saved after her stomach was pumped. Bruce denied his involvement in the situation and wrote Betty off as a, quote, dumb girl. He was having trouble with blood and steel, still upset with the script, and ended up showing his frustration by not showing up to set for the first several days of filming. Producer Andre Morgan said Bruce was so dedicated to getting his way because the movie was supposed to be his first international film and a sampler of greater things to come, bigger budgets, bigger sets, and more action. Bruce wanted the film to be a showcase for American audiences about what he could do and wanted to get his foot in the door, but he also wanted to make sure he still appealed to Chinese audiences and didn't come off as a sellout. He finally came to an agreement with the producers and arrived on set, but the truce didn't last for very long as he thought that the original screenwriter, Michael Allen, had been fired, and Bruce had told the press that as well when in reality, Alan was secretly still working on the script to save money since the budget was so small. One day, Bruce saw that Alan was still in Hong Kong and was livid, telling Warner Bros. that he was quitting the film. Bruce finally came back to work when Alan dropped out of the picture. Bruce's feud with Bob Wall continued on the film when he had to be sent to the hospital after accidentally hitting a broken bottle that Wall was holding and had forgotten to drop during one of the fight scenes. When Bruce returned to set, he took revenge by requesting 12 takes of a scene when he kicked Wall in the chest into a group of stuntmen. At one point, Bruce kicked him so hard that Wall flew backwards into one of the men, whose arm was broken from the sheer force. Bruce was also a perfectionist about the ending fight scene in the Room of Mirrors. It took about six days for him to get the scene exactly as he wanted. Director Robert Klaus said, Toward the end of filming, Bruce was approaching extreme exhaustion. His normal weight of 140 pounds had dwindled down to 120, and he often complained of dizziness and feeling tired. Bruce's request that Blood and Steel be retitled Enter the Dragon were as permitted in the post-production stages, and plans for a series was being considered by Warner Bros., who were trying to get Bruce to sign a contract. Bruce was a hot item in Hollywood. However, he was still having money troubles since his royalties from Golden Harvest Satellite Production Company were mainly going towards the loans Bruce had to pay back for his expensive house and custom Rolls Royce he had just bought from England. Sterling Silliphant had just signed a deal with 20th Century Fox and was hoping to get Bruce back in on working on the silent flute. Bruce was unsure, considering all the trouble he had had with getting the film made years ago. He ended up turning Silliphant and James Coburn down. The film was eventually made in 1978, titled Circle of Iron, and starred Jeff Cooper as the lead and David Carradine in the villain roles that Bruce had wanted to play himself. On May 10, 1973, after looping lines for Enter the Dragon in an unair-conditioned room, Bruce collapsed in the bathroom and was rushed to Baptist Hospital. 
His body was spasming so violently that someone put a spoon in his mouth to prevent him from biting his tongue off. He was examined by a neurosurgeon who found that Bruce's brain had swelled and caused him to have a seizure. A couple hours later, Bruce regained consciousness and was back to normal within a few days. At the end of the month, he received tests to reveal that nothing was wrong with his brain, and physically, he had the body of an 18-year-old. None of the doctors who looked at Bruce were able to find a logical reason for his collapse. Biographer Matthew Polly theorized that it was heat stroke, since Bruce had recently had the sweat glands in his armpits removed to take away stains, since he thought they looked bad on screen. The publisher of Black Belt magazine, Mito Yuhara, said he visited the Lee shortly after Bruce's medical emergency and that Bruce was very jovial because he had just been informed after four days of rigorous medical examinations that he was in top physical condition. But to me, he seemed awfully run down. In all the years I knew him, I never saw him in such an emaciated condition before. Bruce was invited by Enter the Dragon director Robert Klaus to watch a rough cut of the film and immediately knew it would be a success. He and screenwriter Michael Allen even set their differences aside since they were both pleased with the way it had turned out. Ted Ashley at Warner Bros. offered him a deal of $100,000 a year for as long as he lived if he made five more films with the studio. Bruce was very curious, telling the China Mail that the deal gives me security in the years ahead and makes taxation much easier. Besides, it doesn't bar me from working with any other studio. I have great confidence in this studio. I think it will outlive me. On July 20th, 1973, Bruce met with James Bond actor George Lazenby, whom he had wanted to appear in Game of Death, which Bruce had begun working on again. Afterwards, he met with mistress Betty Ting Pei, whom he had started seeing again after filming for Enter the Dragon had ended. He offered her a role, but she declined, claiming she didn't want to appear in a film with the person she was having an affair with. Raymond Chow arrived at Betty's apartment in the evening for unexplained reasons, but said that Bruce began acting out the plot of Game of Death. Then they were set to meet with Lazenby again for dinner to close the deal with the film. Bruce said he was feeling faint and had a headache, so Betty gave him an equagesic pill. Chow decided to go ahead to the meeting and that the two of them could meet him later. Bruce decided to take a nap in Betty's bedroom. Two hours later, Betty went to wake up Bruce, but he wouldn't respond, so she called Chow at the restaurant. Chow raced over to the apartment to find Bruce dead on Betty's bed and knew he had to do something. Betty called her personal physician, Dr. Chu, who soon figured out that Bruce had been dead long before he had arrived. He went along with Betty and Chow's plan to call an ambulance for someone who had collapsed to be taken to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Linda was contacted and arrived at the hospital where they attempted to revive Bruce's already dead body. He was only 32 years old. Just an hour after Bruce had officially passed away, rumors already began to spread about what had been the cause. Linda and Golden Harvest started working on statements to give to the press about where Bruce had died saying he had collapsed from a cerebral edema while in his backyard with his family. Producer Andre Morgan said, We wanted to protect Bruce's image and reputation and to protect Linda's and the children's feelings. We were not stupid enough to believe that we were not going to get tagged out. It was a matter of how long we could delay. The press went wild when it was discovered that Bruce had been found dead at Betty Jean Pei's apartment and that nobody was fessing up to that fact, instead of choosing to refute any involvement. To save face and keep press positive for the upcoming premiere of Enter the Dragon, Linda, Betty, and Raymond came up with a new version of events that was popularly accepted for decades. 
In Bruce's autopsy, the only abnormalities found were that his brain had swelled and he had traces of cannabis in his stomach. His cause of death was considered to be a cerebral edema as a result of an allergic reaction to the equagesic pill he had taken. It was officially ruled a death by misadventure. In 2022, the Clinical Kidney Journal studied Bruce's symptoms and ruled that the edema had been caused by hyponatremia, or a lack of sodium in the body. After a hectic funeral in Hong Kong, Linda had Bruce's body brought to Seattle to be buried. Enter the Dragon opened in August 1973 to middling box office numbers. Many Chinese fans didn't feel it was necessary to watch the film since Bruce was already dead. However, the movie did well internationally, making over $25 million in the U.S. alone, and opened the doors for martial arts films to be made around the world. Shortly after his death, Linda aimed to protect Bruce's legacy and wrote a book, signed a contract to make a biopic, and licensed Bruce's image. He was given a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on April 28, 1993, in tandem with the release of the biopic, Dragon, the Bruce Lee Story. In an undated poem Bruce wrote titled Rain, Black Clouds, he said, Much has been said, yet we have not come to the end of our feelings. Long must be this parting, and remember, remember that all my thoughts have always been of you. The good time will probably never come back again. In a moment, our parting will be over. When days are short and dull nights long, read this poem I leave you. Read it when the silence of the world possesses you, or when you are fretted with disquiet. Long must be this parting, and remember, remember, that all my thoughts have always been of you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. This episode was researched, written, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The Gone But Not Forgotten podcast is part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our live shows, videos, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.